morning as we uh, are looking at the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see the apostles learning a lesson in humility. One of the great passages in Scripture that points us to humility is Philippians 2, as we see the humility of Christ. So we're going to open up now and read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Come before God to pray for His work. Help us to understand His Word now. Lord, we are about to hear from You in a special way as You speak to us through Your Word. We know that You've said Your Word is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword and it divides the very depths of our being. Lord, we would pray that You would do that work, that You would take the Word now that you would use it in our lives powerfully through your spirit. Lord, we pray that you would do this because you're a gracious God, because this is what is good for us, and this is actually the way that you show your love for us. Lord, we pray that you would be gracious to us now, give us understanding, changed hearts and changed lives. We pray this because you are powerful to do this. Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning our sermon is coming from Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verses 46 to 50. That's Luke chapter 9, verses 46 to 50. An argument arose among them, it's the disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side, and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, 
And we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. I'm going to start with a made-up conversation. It's a conversation, though, that's inspired by real events. You may be able to piece together what might have happened. Um, even if you haven't heard this kind of conversation, you'll probably remember something in your own experience that's, that's maybe similar. It goes kind of like this. Two children. Child number one. Look at my drawing. Isn't it nice? Child number two. It's okay. But mine's better. You colored outside the lines. Child number one. Well, fine, but I'm better at running than you. I'm so fast. Okay, child number two again. Yeah, but I win Uno more than you. And on it goes. Have you ever heard something like that? May happen in our house at times. What's wrong with what those kids are doing? It's pretty obvious, I think, that both of them are very, very proud. And they're trying to make themselves look better than the other person. Sometimes when we look at children, it's easy to see sin. It shows up really clearly. So think about those two kids. Their pride is on full display. But actually everyone, young or old, struggles with that same sin of pride. Charles Spurgeon called pride the sin of human nature. Not just one, but he said the sin of human nature. He says this, if there is a sin that is universal, it is this, pride. Well, we know that's also the assessment of God, right? God takes the sin of pride very, very seriously. There are so many passages that you can turn to, especially in the book of Proverbs, that condemn pride. But think also of these words. One just well-known example from the book of James. James writes, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Well, it's not just us who struggle with pride nowadays. Actually, as we just saw in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' disciples have a massive struggle with that same sin of pride. Each one of us struggles with it. And so did they. In our passage today, as Jesus looks at his disciples and as he sees their pride, Jesus shows us that anyone who is to be his follower is given his humility. So Jesus' followers are given Jesus' own humility. This passage here in Luke 9 is basically two short stories, two events that happen in the life of the disciples. And in both of those situations, the disciples' sin of pride is exposed and then it's corrected by Jesus. So we look at this passage then, we'll look at the disciples' pride and Jesus' response in both that first event and the second one as well. So let's look at the disciples' pride. This story opens with them having an argument. And their pride comes through very quickly in the first verse. What are they arguing about? They are arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Verse 46. In their pride, 
Each one of the disciples is trying to prove that he's actually the greatest of the twelve. If you think about it, this, this argument is already ridiculous from the very beginning. Because each one of these apostles could say, you know what, I was personally chosen by Jesus. Each one of them has actually been greatly honored by Jesus. But now they're all standing there trying to take more honor for themselves. But already we see one of the effects of pride. You are never content with what you've been given. No, pride makes us think that we deserve more. Maybe it's, maybe it's more status, more power, more attention. We think we need more. It can even happen in very, very subtle ways. I think that he needs to listen to me a little more carefully. Or why don't they ever recognize what I'm doing? In those situations, your pride is actually making you think you deserve more than what God himself has actually graciously given you. But this power struggle that we see among the disciples, it's actually even more sad. It's more sad because of what Jesus has just told them. Remember the context. Previous passage, verses 43 to 44, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So Jesus has just taught his disciples that he will suffer and die. Suffering and dying, that takes humility, not pride. But the disciples here now are showing just how unlike their Savior they actually are as they come in pride. They are not like their suffering Savior. Well, Jesus knows what the disciples were talking about. And Jesus responds to them in verses 47 to 48. Now, Jesus' response here to their pride, it's not just that he knows what they said, but notice that Luke very specifically says he knew the reasoning of their hearts. Look at verse 47. Jesus knows what's in the heart of every single person. That means right now as we're sitting here, Jesus is able to look into your heart and my heart right now and know what's there. He knows the pride, actually, that exists in every one of our hearts. That could be scary that Jesus actually knows what I'm thinking, even if I don't say it to anybody else. But as we see in this passage, this is good news. It is really good news that Jesus knows exactly what's going on in your hearts. See what he does with the disciples. Because he knows what's going on, at a deep level inside of them, he actually responds in a deep way to their sin. See what he says to the disciples. See, his response goes far beyond the actual words they say. Though those words are wrong in and of themselves, right? But his response goes right down deep into their heart to take out that root of pride that's there. How does Jesus do that? How does he actually reach into their heart to show them their pride? Well, he does it in a very unexpected way. Jesus took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. 
For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. What Jesus is, is teaching the disciples there, and what he's actually teaching us right now is simple, but it's life-changing. And here it is. Greatness in God's kingdom comes from service, not status. Instead of trying to spend our time improving our, our status, trying to make ourselves look better, and often at the main, same time trying to make others feel lower, no, Jesus says don't do that. No, he's actually calling us to service. Let's look at more closely what Jesus says and does here. First, notice that Jesus turns the disciples' attention away from themselves. And he turns their attention now towards someone else. But it's not just any old person. It's a very unexpected person. He has them look at a child. When you think of of greatness or, or of importance, what kinds of people come to your mind? Probably not a child. Maybe you think of a, a boss of a company. Maybe you think of someone who's famous, maybe a sports figure or somebody, a celebrity. Maybe a, a world leader. Those are the people we would normally think of when we think of greatness. But that's exactly why Jesus chooses a child. That's the point. Jesus says, when you're thinking of greatness, don't look up, but look down. Look down to the most humble person who needs your help. That's actually where you're going to show who is great. Now Jesus shows them this child and explains to them, whoever receives this child in my name actually receives me. When Jesus uses that word receiving, he means welcoming or or honoring or valuing. Maybe another way you can think about what Jesus is saying here is that how you treat this child is actually how you treat me. And notice that the receiving must be done in Jesus' name. That's actually an important detail. Doing something in Jesus' name means that you're doing it with Jesus' approval. You're you're doing it on his behalf. It's almost like you're his representative acting for him. So treat this child as Jesus himself treats that child. That's what Jesus is calling his disciples here too. Does does this truth of valuing the the child, of treating him in a special way, does that remind you of another time in Jesus' ministry? Just a little later in Luke, right, we read about the crowds who are bringing even infants to come to Jesus. What do the disciples do when they see the kids coming? They tell them to stop. Go away. Jesus doesn't want to talk to you. But listen to this from Luke chapter 18. But Jesus called to them, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. That later time, the disciples didn't think that the children should see Jesus. Maybe maybe the children really aren't worth Jesus' time. You know, he's too important. He's going to be teaching all the adults. Those are the people who need Jesus' attention. Maybe they would say, well, the children, they won't really get anything from his teaching, right? They're not going to benefit from him. They're too young. They won't understand. You're wasting Jesus' time and you're wasting your time. The disciples, when they turn those kids away, they are making judgments about what people are worth. 
They were saying the children were not important enough. But actually, if we're going to talk about the value, the value of a child or of actually anyone else, the question really is simple, and it's this. Does Christ value that person enough to die for them? Does Christ value those children enough to even die for them? And the, the simple answer is yes. Jesus does. Jesus does not die just to save someone who knows a lot. Jesus does not die just to save adults. Jesus dies to save all kinds of people, including children. And because he does that, because he shows his love to all sorts of people, then he's calling us here to do that very same thing. Jesus calls us to value and to serve the people who seem to be least important in the kingdom of God. You know, that, that child, that's just an example for us. It goes way beyond this. The, the principle applies more broadly. How we treat the lowest, seemingly most unimportant person in the church is actually how we treat Jesus. I'll give you a personal illustration. I have to say by way of disclaimer, right before I start the story, we shouldn't do this, okay? I'm not advising that we do this, but it was a powerful illustration of this principle. I was, I was at a church in a big city, and we were told there was going to be a guest preacher who was going to come. Um, you know, as we were getting ready, as we were starting to come in, this, this homeless man came shuffling in and he went to sit in the back row. People, I think the whole congregation kind of, you know, did the little turn away. And it was, I admit, it was myself as well. I kind of ignored the man who was sitting there. And then, and then the time came for the sermon. And that homeless man stood up and he went up to the pulpit. And there was an audible gasp in the congregation. He was the preacher. He had actually purposefully disguised himself to expose arson of pride. And it was effective. Effective. Again, not saying we need to do that, but it illustrated the fact that we were treating someone in the church as not worth our time. And that's actually how we were treating Jesus. Because a simple test for our love for Christ is actually our love for others. You know, people can be all smiles to the pastor and completely ignore those who really need their attention. Maybe it is an actual child in the congregation who needs a word of encouragement, maybe a word of correction at times. You know, maybe the person who's in need is that, that visitor who you know, doesn't know where they're supposed to be going, who's flipping around in their Bible, doesn't know what's going on. Maybe they need that word of welcome. Maybe they need your help to participate in worship. Maybe it's that shut-in who never comes to worship. Maybe that person needs a visit. <coughs> Maybe that person needs a phone call or a card. Maybe it's also that brother and sister who you see in the church week after week, but you know what? If you're honest, you don't really know them. Sometimes also you don't get along with them. But they are the people that Christ himself is calling you to minister to. It's not just also a one-time affair. See, our love for Christ is shown for our love for others, but it's also shown for our love for others over the long haul, over a long period of time. It is way easier to just kind of dip into somebody's life, maybe on a Sunday morning or occasionally. It's way easier to do that 
than to consistently love them, especially if they're difficult, if they're hard to love, than to do that year after year. But that's the love that Jesus is calling us to. And as you think about those people, maybe in your past that you can think about, maybe in this church, people that you can focus on, why do you do this? You do this because Christ does this for them. Christ values them enough to have died for them and have brought them into your life and into this church for you to serve. Jesus' point, again, is very simple, that your love for Christ is actually seen in your love for others, especially the lowly and the unimportant. It's really in this kind of service that true value is found in the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus means in verse 48. He says, For he who is least among you, the one who is serving, he who is least among you, he is actually the one who is great. He who is willing to make himself the least by serving others, by pushing that attention away from himself and on to others, by dying to himself in order to serve others, not just to serve some in the church again, but to serve all in the church. He is the one who is actually great in the eyes of God. Think about what the apostles' pride here was going to get them. What did they think they were going to gain by ignoring people or by fighting among themselves. Maybe they would get to go first in line. Maybe they get to sit next to Jesus. If I'm the greatest, well, then I get that prime seat next to Jesus. Maybe my pride now will get more heads to turn as I walk by. But what was the cost? What was the cost of doing those things for them? Well, their pride was actually leading them to sacrifice their relationship with Christ and their relationship with God the Father. Notice actually the deep connection Jesus reveals. He says, if you treat this child, if you're receiving me humbly, you actually receive him who sent me, God the Father himself. When these disciples are pursuing their own ends, when they are so prideful, they're in danger of sacrificing a relationship with God and the blessings that come from that all for the sake of their own pride. It's not just the disciples, though. That's what our sinful pride does to us as well. You can think about so many people outside of Christ, right, who are seeking their own good, but in doing that, they are throwing away their life. If that is you, repent of your pride and believe. But you know what? Those of us in Christ, we do a very similar thing will say, yes, I've bowed the knee to Christ, and it's true, I have done that. But we keep trying to get up off our knees and grab something for ourselves instead of waiting for God to put blessings right into our hands. You know, I wish that I could say the disciples learned a lesson about pride. I wish they learned their lesson that day, but you know what? That's not true. Because you know what? Their same need for humility also emerges immediately after they have just gotten this lesson from Jesus. Look a little further in Luke 9, verses 49 to 50. This is the second scene that we see about the apostles' pride. Now John answers Jesus. What does he say? Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. 
what John says here seems to be almost like a direct response to Jesus' teaching about service and humility, where he's saying, yes, Jesus, you're right. You're right. We shouldn't be fighting among ourselves. We should be humble. We should value the people that you value. But Jesus, you should have seen this guy. And then he goes off on his rant. Pay attention, very close attention, to the pride that John and the other disciples are showing here. They saw a man, just put yourself in their shoes, they saw a man who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. Notice the man wasn't just trying to do that. He wasn't just trying to cast out demons. No, he was actually successful casting out demons in Jesus' name. And John and the others go up to him, and they try to stop him. Why? What's the reason? Well, they say, because he does not follow with us. Now, you could say on the one hand, what they're concerned about is legitimate, right? That this guy is not following them in the same way that they're following Jesus. He's not quite the same kind of disciple. It's true, he wasn't following Jesus in the same way. Maybe he wasn't learning from him and serving him. And so what he's doing, what this man is doing, is certainly irregular. Right? It's not typical. If you also think about it, these are the apostles. These are the men that Jesus is giving authority in the church to. Remember, after Pentecost, these are the men that have the Spirit in a special way, and they're appointed to make decisions for the faith and practice of the church. So again, it's not just any old person trying to get this man to stop casting out demons in Jesus' name. They have weight and authority because Jesus has given it to them. But I think this is a case kind of of missing the forest for the trees. Whatever is happening with this man is clearly the work of God. The spiritual forces of evil are being overthrown through the power of Jesus' name. But what do the apostles want to do? Well, they want to step in and they want to stop the work of God because it isn't being done in exactly the right way. Do you see the pride in what they're doing? The disciples' pride here might actually be harder to see than in that previous story in verses 46 to 48 when they're arguing. But their pride is still very much here. Maybe I can show it this way. What the disciples are doing is they're essentially telling God how he ought to run things. Does that sound too strong to you? That's exactly what Jesus says they're doing. This is what Jesus says to them. Verse 50. Do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. So why has Jesus stopped the disciples and not the man? For the one who is not against you is for you. We have to be clear. Jesus is not necessarily condoning or agreeing what this man is doing. And he's certainly not encouraging his disciples to go off and join him in casting out demons. But this man is clearly not opposing the work of the disciples. In fact, he's actually doing exactly what the apostles themselves were doing at the very beginning of this chapter in verses 1 through 6. And as far as this man is doing the work of God, maybe a better way to say it is, as far as God is doing his work through this man, he should be left alone. Jesus is telling the disciples, let God be God. And humble yourselves before God. Let God be God. Don't tell Him what to do. And instead, humble yourselves before God. Now, applying that truth of letting God be God and humbling ourselves 
Applying that truth is hard. It requires a lot of wisdom, and it requires the work of the Holy Spirit. As we think about what that might look like in our lives, God does require us sometimes to draw clear lines on the gospel. We cannot support anyone, for instance, who opposes the gospel. It's a very clear non-negotiable. And we also need to speak openly against false belief. So someone like Joel Osteen, Health and Wealth Gospel, he should be condemned, and rightly so. Jesus is not saying go along with him. But there are also many other times, right, when we still need to rightly disagree with other Christians. You know, we may understand God's sovereignty, for instance, differently. That's a, that's a legitimate difference that we can have with true brothers and sisters. And it may be a difference even that will prevent us from working closely with them. Sometimes also we have to confront other Christians, even other faithful churches, about their sin. These are all legitimate divisions that God sometimes calls us to make. But even when we disagree with other believers, even when God makes it clear that we need to do this and we can't work together, we must remember that God can and does work in and through all of his people. So that truth, that God's actually worked in all of his people, that should lead us to this deep humility, this thanksgiving, and joy as we see God work through his entire faithful church. This congregation, the OPC, the Reformed world, we're just one tiny piece of God's kingdom. And we need to be humble and see that and actually give thanks for what God is doing through his entire church. Let's try to make that practical here. What would it look like for our congregation, for your life, to have that kind of thankfulness and joy for what God is doing through other believers and other churches? Well, give thanks that we're not the only church on the peninsula. There are so many other faithful churches that God has raised up here in our region. And give thanks for what God is doing in those churches. You might not know the specifics. You might not know the pastor or what's going on in those churches. But the same things that he's doing here, he's doing there. Because they are part of his kingdom. Another application is we think about these other churches around us. Speak highly of our brothers and sisters. They are our brothers and sisters. And God is working in and through them. Speak highly of them. And seek humility. Again, see that we're just one tiny piece of God's bigger plan. So pride, pride is the problem. Pride is the problem for all of us. And humility is the solution for all of us. But if only it were that easy. It's easy to see, but it's hard to do. Even impossible to do apart from Christ. When Jesus is actually exposing his disciples' pride, and he's pointing them toward humility, he's actually pointing them toward himself. And we read from Philippians 2 earlier, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then Paul tells us, what did that mind of Christ Jesus, what did that look like? What did that lead him to do? Well, he humbled himself. He he is equal with God. He did not count that as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself by becoming a man, becoming just like you, and then by obeying God to the point of death on a cross. Why? 
Not because he deserved it, but because you deserved it. That's the humility of Christ. That is humility in service to God and in submission to God's will. Just maybe to drive the point home even, even more, think about who Jesus showed humility for. Who was for his humility for? On whose behalf did he humble himself? Did he take on a human nature and did he suffer and die? Well, we can say he suffered and died for his people. That's right. But he didn't do that for us as we are now, as saved people. And he didn't do that for us as we will be, as perfect people in heaven. No, Jesus suffered and died for us as we were. Enemies of sin. Enemies of God and dead in our sins. I think that fact makes Christ's humility even more amazing because Jesus died for people who hated him. He died for us when we hated him. And in his death, he meets our greatest need. He meets the problem of our sin. And he is offering us forgiveness for our sins, forgiveness for that pride that makes us want to slap God in the face day after day. That is what Jesus has done in his humility. That's who he's done it for, for us and our sin. How, how do you respond? How do we respond to Christ's humility? Can you really say that it's your sin of pride that led Jesus to humble himself to the point of death for you? Can you say with Paul, I am the chief of sinners? And as you see your sin of pride, do you turn to Jesus for forgiveness? Or do you kind of just brush off his sacrifice? Do you view the Christ, the cross, in other words, as nice but not necessary? It's a nice thing, but uh, I don't really need it. That's pride speaking. And your pride, as you say those words, or as you think those words, or you act those ways, your pride will lead you straight to hell. But Jesus' humility on your behalf will lead you to heaven. What about if you have believed already and you are following Christ? Now that Christ has saved us, what does God promise? That he is conforming us to the image of his humble son. It is God and God alone who is going to be able to help each one of us with our pride. But God's sure promise is that all of us who are actually truly disciples of Jesus will be made like Jesus. That's part of that process. Pray very specifically for God to expose pride in your life. I said in the beginning, and I'll say it again, we all suffer from pride. We recognize that in theory, but do we see it and pray about it in practice? And if we make that prayer, we really truly mean it. For God to show us our pride, He will answer us. That's a scary prayer to make. But He will answer us. He will show us our pride in so many areas. And when he answers our pride, answers our prayer, and he reveals our pride, humbly repent. Seek forgiveness and pray for a humble spirit. He will answer that prayer too, and he will give it to us. I started this sermon by saying that Christ's followers are given Christ's humility. See, it's not just that Christ's followers somehow need to have a humility like Christ. No. It's that Christ's 
followers, you and I, are given by God himself the humility of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that is humility to serve everyone in the church and is humility to suffer and to obey and to submit to God's will. This passage is just so clear. So we can give thanks, but it's not just that God requires us to do things. No, it's that God actually gives us exactly what He requires as He gives us the humility of Jesus Christ. That is something that is just so amazing and worth praising God forever for. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that you sent Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ actually willingly humbled himself to die for our sins. And Lord, we pray that you would save us. There are those in this congregation who are not yet followers of you, that you would save us and that you would be at work in us to give us that very humility of Jesus Christ so that we aren't looking at what's best for us, but actually as we see needs, especially in the church, that we would see that these are brothers and sisters that you value and that you died for and you are calling us to lay down our life for as well. We pray also that we would give thanks for your work And the entire church, the entire body of Christ around the world, thank you for the privilege of serving you here and help us to pray for and give thanks for our brothers and sisters here and around the world. Lord, and we are so thankful that you don't ask us to do something, hold it way outside of our reach, but that you actually are working in us through your spirit, the very obedience that you require. Thank you for meeting every single one of our needs. And we pray that we would respond in humility and praise in all of our life. We pray this all now in Jesus' name. Amen.